Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Ken Leon joins us from CFRA, who's had a first look at the data as it comes out. Ken, I want to go immediately to use of cash and that they did a 4.3 billion share repurchase coming out of this pandemic. What do these banks and what does Mr. Diamond do with the reality of all that cash? So it's return of capital. Um, Jamie Diamond has said that <clears throat> we're overcapitalized. The Fed last month said by July, they'll be able to increase their dividend and also buybacks. Uh, that would be a big change of, since the last 12 months. Um, so the return of capital is a big theme for, for being an investor in banks. Ken, right now, the headline coming from the CEO, Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan, loan demand remains challenged. That's the issue right now, Ken. Do you see that persisting through the early part of this year into the middle? Um, it's incredibly important because uh, loan volumes are and loan balances, both for consumer and for commercial, uh, is going to drive the delta for performance for the bank. We've already almost maxed out in terms of the investment bank. Uh, for JP Morgan, about 50% of revenue comes from the investment bank. Over the last five years, though, JP Morgan is the only bank that has positive net interest income compared to the other large banks. That's an incredible fact that in a low rate environment, we also first need is the loan activity. So I don't think uh, JP Morgan on the earnings call really wants to talk about net interest income, uh, given that it's such a difficult challenge. Well, that was the time to talk about the investment bank just for a moment, Ken. Another headline crossing, the investment banking revenue coming in at $2.85 billion, the estimate $2.46 billion. Lisa, just going through the trading numbers right now, fixed sales and trading revenue, $5.76 billion, the estimate $5.02 billion. Upside surprise there. Likewise, on equity sales and trading revenue too, $3.29 billion, the estimate $2.32 billion. I think it's fair to say the first quarter was pretty decent for JP Morgan, Lisa. They crushed it, which is the reason why it's surprising the shares are lower after beating expectations, just to give you a sense of how much they beat. Fixed income trading up 15%, which beat instant Stock trading up 47%. Ken, it is not about this, as you said. This is not the area that people want to see the growth in because this is fickle. And frankly, we have already seen trading volumes come down dramatically. We've seen deal volume up. People were expecting that. And yes, JP Morgan crushed that. What are people actually looking at that is sending shares lower? Is it the fact that deposits rose this 36%? and that loan growth was a measly 1% in this backdrop? I think it really relates to growth and return of capital. Um, JP Morgan has done incredibly well. Uh, they tend to outperform the other large banks. And I think when you look ahead to the rest of the year uh, for the analysts, the concern always is the first quarter is typically the strongest quarter. Um, and seasonally, it begins to ease. So, I mean, to put these kind of numbers together for the next quarter and the quarter after that are going to be challenging. And that's why I think they're going to talk about return of capital because yeah. investors out there want total return. <clears throat>
I want to go there, Ken, but I think so important is a headline buried in here. We're going to put these headlines up, folks, because J.P. Morgan does a great job of laying out the overall bank and then those categories as well. Ken Leon, you know this is all about technology, and buried in the stream of headlines is mobile customers up 9%. I'm taking that almost as a revenue proxy. Can you move that over to a bank that's going to deliver high single-digit revenue stream out 36 or dare I say, out 60 months? You know, so mobile applications, and we've had, Tom, through the years, the discussion of, you know, bricks and mortar and branches, but it's almost like a Home Depot where it's omni-channel shopping. Your ability to do banking, and most uh, consumers are now able to do it through their mobile phone. Um, but additionally, a lot of uh, banking gets done coming into the branch uh, particularly for small business owners. And they're also increasing the number of their financial centers and branches uh, in markets that they really don't have a presence. That's why I think Omnichannel gives them that capability, as you've noted, with technology. Ken, fantastic to catch up with you. As always, uh, always good to see you too. Ken Leon there of CFRA, the Global Director of Equity Research. We've got the right guest to talk to, John Farrell, right now about summing all this together. Jeff Yu joins us now, BNY Mellon Senior Strategist. Jeff, can we just go back to that final point that we made with Alison there? The fiscal support has disrupted what is happening with traditional lenders here in America. How do you read that, Jeff? Uh, well, you can read that in two ways. Uh, one uh, is uh, the uh, government uh, now uh, being the uh, primary source um, of um, demand, you know, the uh, primary engine of an economy. If that's so, they can raise money uh, through uh, non-loan channels, i.e. they're going to access uh, funding directly from investors and uh, from um, capital markets. Uh, uh, but secondly, there's a fear of a displacement effect, right? And the fact that fiscal has to do the work, it means there is no private sector loan demand or very limited private sector loan demand right now. So banks are stuck in that sense. So ultimately, it's a chicken and egg story. The hope is fiscal kickstarts the economy, generates the private sector demand, and then banks can be happy again with steeper yield curves, of course. Jeff, can we get inflation, true inflation, if banks are not increasing their lending? Again, it goes back to the chicken and egg story. Banks will only believe or only start to lend when they believe there is sustainable inflation driven by demand. So that's what central banks have been saying. Where is the demand going to come from? And we want to see inflation on a sustained basis. Right now, they don't even know how much economic scarring is going to be. IMF talked about a five-year window. It could take that long. Well, Jeff, uh, that's pretty forgive much what me. Central let let me it, jump in here, Tom. The absence of lending... It's not because there is an absence of demand. There's an absence of demand for loans because there is an abundance of cash. The retail sales on Thursday, Tom, are going to be absolutely stellar because people are spending. They're just not going to the banks for that money. That's the story. I would separate, John, the traditional banks from the big international banks. And Jeff, you, this is an unfair question uh, to you, but I'm going to ask it anyways with your years of work in London. Is the next frontier for our successful American banks to take on Europe and to gain market share on the European continent? 
I'm not sure that's a fair fight, to be honest, um, because um, what Europe is pushing for is actually banking union. U.S. has a banking union. It was formed um, that, uh, that way. So Europe, uh, before Europe can actually have a full-fledged banking union, I actually don't think that is competition between equals. But if you can actually see lenders uh, from emerging markets from Asia start to sprawl overseas, so they haven't been that successful so far, um, but for the U.S. banks, so they should actually probably watch their rare you know, rather than just focus across the Atlantic. Jeff, let's get a market call. What do you like right now? Uh, so um, right now, I think markets are really looking for risk again, looking for carry trades, right? And euro really um, is the one in focus. Um, we're seeing euro dollar push up against 120 again. The view that Europe um, is no longer a problematic case in terms of recovery. It's only a question of delay. They will get vaccinated. They will hit the rates of the UK and US will get. And then with the fiscal, you will see European reflation. What do you fund it out of? I like to fund it out of Swiss franc, maybe some highly valued Asian currencies like the Taiwan dollar. So these uh, carry trades taking out the US dollar angle are the ones I'm looking for. So the euro is no longer the funding currency, Jeff, in this environment. The euro has now seen probably the reflation currency. And also, just taking a step beyond that, European assets. Um, if markets are looking for value, there is a sense uh, that Europe is where you want to go in terms of uh, equities. Um, but again, that margin expansion, that investment lift has to come from NGEU. It has to come from governments. And the last 48 hours, we're finally seeing the European Union move on that front. They've announced the parameters, announced the issuance numbers. Hopefully, the money starts to flow soon. This idea of Europe being the reflation trade is borne out by Stephen Major over at HSBC, who says that even Fed tapering is already priced in to where we are in rates and the dollar. Would you agree? Um, so a lot of, um, I would say, good news uh, is in the dollar right now. And that, of course, relates to the U.S. monetary policy path. If we look at our own custodial iFlow data, for example, over the past few weeks, actually investors are buying back um, treasuries. So it's a sign uh, that the uh, selling treasuries trade to price in a stronger U.S. recovery. That is in the price right now. So what I'm watching for is where is the money um, going in terms of other markets? Is it going more to Europe? Is it going to emerging markets? We want to see a risk on environment, but clients are going to be very selective about where they want to be risk on. And Europe looks a good candidate right now. Jeff, this is a question I normally wouldn't ask, but I think it works today. What is your parsing of the inflation dynamic, the separation of services and goods, the industry to industry parsing, and the 47 different measurements of inflation that we have? Right. So you really need to um, separate uh, the distribution of that in terms of if there is good manufacturing demand right now, and we've been seeing that for several quarters now, at least since the last, uh, the end of Q3 2020, that will continue to drive prices. Now, on the consumer side, I think what the Fed and other policymakers, they want to get past this hump. They want to get past this base effect driven inflation, and then they will start to see whether it's sustainable. The second point, which is crucial, we talk about cash, we talk about consumers and households having a lot of money. Who has it? In the UK as well. It's concentrated in, let's just say, the upper deciles of the population. So you want to identify baskets where perhaps you see greater spending amongst the lower deciles. If that, if those items are not being bought, so low value add staples, for example, yeah. then you're just seeing inflation driven by the rich, driven by the wealthy spending. It's not trickling down. There's a problem there as well. Jeff, good to catch up. Always good to hear from you, mate. Jeff Yu there, out of London, BNY Mellon, senior strategist. 
an historic move again in this original economy. Stephen Bigger has seen this before with Argus Research, their director of financial uh, institutions. Stephen, thanks for joining us uh, today. Who will provide the use of cash pressure? If, if you're at a given bank, and John's focused on Goldman Sachs, which part of the process says, wait a minute about dividends, wait a minute about share buybacks, and wait a minute with what are we going to do with the cash? Well, it's always, always a good problem to have, right? Uh, I, I think the CCAR results uh, mid-year are going to, you know, answer a lot of those questions. But uh, banks are, you know, certainly flush with cash right now. They've had moratoriums on, on dividends and, and share buybacks for, you know, for over a year now. Uh, and I, I think we're going to have, you know, pretty strong uh, shareholder return figures come out uh, with CCAR results mid-year. Stephen, do you prefer Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, the broker-focused banks, the ones that are less susceptible to loan demands at a time when people do have so much cash as a result of government intervention? Well, I think there's a, a natural uh, sort of, you know, conclusion uh, at some point to the big capital markets banks. Uh, we're favorable on J.P. Morgan, on Morgan Stanley, on Bank of America for, you know, for the strength that we've seen. The investment banking, the trading has just been phenomenal. Uh, and all of the things that are in place uh, that you would expect to see, uh, you know, why why are those uh, numbers so strong? Uh, M&A activity, uh, more companies coming to market. It's because of the high CEO confidence, the record stock market values, the easy financing that we're seeing. So, so I think there's another uh, quarter or two probably of, of you know really strong numbers coming out of investment banking and, and trading. Uh, but you know, as you've been talking about on the program, the uh, anchor uh, a bit has been net interest income. Uh, there's been the net uh, margin uh, issues, obviously, as the, the you know we're we're going to start to lap that as the, the Fed from one year ago reduced rates to zero. Uh, so the the year over year comparisons will start to get better. Uh, but you really need loan growth, you know, for a bank like uh, J P Morgan. Forty five percent of revenues we expect in 2021 are coming from net interest income. So those uh, capital market side is is only going to go so far. Well, uh, so we we do think there is uh, you know silver lining here for regionals. Uh, in that the as as margins improve, as the the yield curve steepens, uh, as those loss reserves come back into profits, uh, so you know I wouldn't count out the the regional banks uh, just yet. And we'll go to the regional banks in a bit, but I want to stick on loan demand because that really is the story today. As a lot of people parse out, how much is this a lack of demand resulting from people perhaps not able to hire or not willing to chart a new business after what they just experienced, or is this just simply because people have so much cash? When does it start to matter that loan demand is tepid when it comes to the economic prospect? Well, I think later this year, the expectation uh, certainly would be that as, as vaccines uh, do their job, as, as more people come back out into the workforce, as, uh, you know, we have, we've already seen strong demand in housing and cars, which are, are you know, two really strong uh, segments uh, for, for consumers uh, in terms of, you know, just sure, pure dollar uh, volume, uh, but they have found that they don't need uh, to, to take lending out for a lot of other things, including credit card debt, which has been actually reduced over the course of the pandemic uh, as the stimulus measures and others, and people have just spent, spent less uh, on services and other things. So so I think the, the worry begins uh, later this year. Um, you know, we've moved down from 15% unemployment down to 6%. So the next uh, tranche of that is going to be, you know, harder to come by. I don't think we go from here to, you know, to the previous low of 3.5% anytime soon. Uh, so that that kind of takes time to work off. In fact, uh, you know, many jobs may not may not come back at all. 
so I think it's just a testament to the how strong the, the consumer balance sheet is today. Uh, they feel they don't need those uh, those dollars uh, for for lending, uh, and I would happen to agree with uh, with Jamie Dimon and at uh, his comment about loan growth being challenging. Uh, I, I think that is the case and, and will be the case for the next few quarters here. What do you think the pressure looks like to drop standards for lending right now, Stephen? Uh, you mean, what, is, uh, what are the headwinds to lending? Well, these banks are sitting on a ton of deposits. There's a lot of money that needs to get put to work if they can, Stephen. So I'm trying to understand if the demand's not there from traditional sources, where do they go? Well, traditionally, uh, banks would, you know, if given the, the strong shape of uh, consumers and businesses, they would uh, lower lending standards and, uh, and and try to push it that way. Um, you know, that always has the, the counter effect down the road of, of higher charge-offs. So um, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, the dynamics you mentioned uh, very true on the, on the deposits. We're just seeing, you know, we've seen phenomenal uh, you know, rec- record growth in, in deposits, and I, I think uh, that's one thing that needs to be uh, wear down. I mean, if you have uh, ten thousand in, in the bank, you're probably going to spend that uh, first before you you know go take out a loan. So I think that does have to wind down uh, before we see that loan growth, and that's an, that's just an additional headwind. Uh, so, so no, I don't. I don't think they have a, uh, a silver bullet here to try to yeah. uh, increase lending growth. Uh, they, they again could go out the the credit quality spectrum, uh, but that uh, tends to come <clears> back to bite, and it's probably not a good idea at this time, uh, you know, given where we are in the recovery process. Stephen, good to hear from you, sir. As always, Stephen Bigger there, Argus Research Director of Financial Institutions Research. Away from fee generation is a reality that it's all supported by a boom economy. Seth Carpenter at UBS has been wonderful, wonderful, I should say, about parsing uh, this boom economy. Seth, describe how opaque it is to get out beyond Q3 this year. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's so much uncertainty at that point. I mean, we're pretty optimistic. We think... Uh, 2022 is going to be a pretty solid year coming in just under 4%. But boy, that could go wrong in any number of ways. We still have fiscal policy. There's the debate about a new infrastructure package. There's a debate about how much taxes are going to go up in 2022. And I think there's just the overall question of what is going to happen globally to uh, the virus. Describe the turbulence, a phrase from Alan Greenspan, his wonderful The Age of Turbulence. Let's take a boom economy as turbulence, is it good turbulence? Is it a constructive churn of the capitalistic system? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good turbulence. Depends on if you're a vault trader or not. But uh, no, I mean, I think there's a lot here. The first important part, I think, is just seeing how quickly people who are out of work, displaced from their jobs, get back to work. And I think that's more a matter of survival than sort of some underlying medium trend for the economy. But I do think there are lots of trends that existed pre-COVID that are getting accelerated where you know, think about retail. We know that for years there was a decline in employment in retail as there was more online shopping. That trend just got massively accelerated with COVID. And I think we are going to see a continued transformation just in the way the economy works because of COVID. Seth, there is so much uncertainty about what the shape of this cycle looks like, the duration of it as well. When we came out of the last crisis, we had Mohamed Aleran and the team at PIMCO talking about the new normal. We had the likes of Larry Summers reintroducing secular stagnation as a theme. And I think we've got a quick understanding about duration and the likelihood that we would get a shallow recovery as well. This time around, it could be anything. Morgan Stanley talking about shorter, hotter. Others talking about a return to trend after the next couple of years, maybe back to what we saw before, Seth. What are you anticipating? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that right now there's a huge amount of impetus coming out of both fiscal and monetary policy combined. And if our forecast is borne out, then we're going to see the unemployment rate get back down to the three and a half-ish range that we saw just before COVID uh, sometime at the end of, say, 2023. And if that's right, then what that means is we got through basically what it took us a 10-year cycle to do in just a few years. And I think the next question is, what happens next? We know that the last business cycle was not going to end right away. It didn't end on its own. It ended because we had this uh, exogenous shock from COVID. I personally am pretty optimistic that there's plenty of uh, possibility for more productivity gains. And uh, I'm also curious to see just how far the labor market can go in terms of drawing people back in who have uh, been outside of the labor market. How much is that view predicated on this idea that the cash pile that consumers have, which has actually been a problem for the banks as we've been talking about all morning, (laughs) that they actually spend a lot of that money very quickly? Yeah, so it's only partially predicated on that. We do think that consumer spending is going to pick up and be very strong this year. But a lot of that is just getting back to a more normal relationship between consumer spending on the one hand and income. Consumer spending is still very, very depressed relative to you know what you would normally expect given where aggregate income is, especially consumer spending on services. That's down you know six, seven percent relative to pre-COVID levels. If that comes back over the next two or three quarters, that's just a huge increase in spending and in, in, in percentage growth rate terms. And if we're right, that's going to be the initial impetus to pull thing pull people back in. Sure, there's probably some spending out of that pent-up savings, out of everything that people didn't save last year. But what we know is, you know, savings, if it's kept long enough, becomes wealth. And we know that consumers' tendency to spend out of wealth isn't that big. And so I think first order, it really is, let's get back to normal, that, that, that urge people will have to get back to normal. Seth, just clarify again for me, retail sales tomorrow. We've had CPI Tuesday, we've had bank earnings this morning. We'll be leading with retail sales tomorrow. What's your number? Yeah, so we think it's going to be very, very strong. And, uh, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent is all possible on a month on month basis. What we saw in February was actually a, a shortfall. Part of that was driven because tax refunds, a lot of which are driven by earned income tax credits, were low. That should be a boost this time. Then we have the fiscal stimulus checks coming in, and we also have warmer weather and uh, falling uh, COVID mortality. So the risk is gone. So we're looking for a really big number for March. And we think that's just the starting point for a very strong second quarter, probably close to 10, 11 percent at an annual rate for Q2. Unreal. Seth, good to catch up, sir. Seth Carpenter, UBS Chief, U.S. Economist. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.